Before you sit down, you might just want to grab a Bible. Uh, there are green Bibles just on the side or at the end of the rows or on your chairs. And uh, welcome team. And if you want to, guys, just want to take the seats over here that the youth were in. It's more comfortable. You'll be able to hear me better. This, this little youth segment here, if you want to come in from the edges. Um, it is great to see you all. I'm Will Van Hart, if we've met before. And um, it's, I love this evening service. It's a great time. I'm not feeling 100%, to be honest. So if I sort of vaporize in some sort of mush of um, gobbledygook, then just bear with me. Um, obviously, that bodes well for our seminar later on. <laughs> but do stay if you'd like to. Um, we're going to read tonight uh, from Luke chapter 15, and this is our final um, sermon directly on the Running Father passage, although we continue over the next two Sundays, we explore the United and then the Missional Family, so around the same theme before we head into Easter. So reading tonight from Luke chapter 15, and then again from verse 25 to the end. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who'd squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You know, throughout this series, we've been trying to impress upon you a radical revelation that Jesus has been offering to his religious listeners. This idea that God uh, is love and action, that he's pursuing you, uh, and that he is not the God that you anticipated that he was. Jesus is offering a revision, uh, a transformation uh, to a group of people who had very, very hard, very rigid assumptions for what God was like. You know, the same is true for the Genesis text. Uh, there was an ancient piece of wisdom literature called the Numa Elish, which probably predates the Genesis text by about four or five hundred years. Uh, the writer of Genesis is offering a revision. God isn't out here to eat you. <laughs> He's not out here to destroy you. He's not out here uh, to make fun of you or for you to be his plaything. God wants relationship with you and he is good. Now, Jesus is revising the assumptions that this group of people had about Jesus. And yet it says something about the nature of the human heart that despite all that Jesus says about God in this incredible parable, we still interpreted it as a cautionary tale about living a prodigal lifestyle. Now, what I found really fascinating about doing this segment of teaching, and me and Tim were getting really excited about this, when we, you know, we pray quite hard over what we teach here, uh, and we plan for quite a long time, we kind of wrestle, you know what Tim's like, let's just chew on this will for a little while, you know, Let, let's just really chew on it, let's just, you know, let's just let it settle, and I'm like, I'm so giddy, I'm like, I'm already on planning the next series, now let's just let it settle, and we go round, you know, we chew on it, we, we pray, we consider, we, we discuss, you know, we really want to bring teaching which we feel is on God's heart for the heart of the church. 
And it would have been so easy to rush through this, but I think for us both, there's been real revelation as we've been teaching, we've been Bible teaching for a long time, there's been real revelation, again, about, about the nature of God through this parable. What was Jesus really trying to say? So it's been good for us, and I hope it's been really good for you guys too. But it remains incredible to me that the general population continue to assume that Christianity is largely a moral code that could offer access to a largely indifferent, if not a directly hostile God. You know, I, I, I've sat under teaching around the prodigal son for so long, and, you know, as I said in some of the early sermons, you know, the whole principle here was don't get lost. Like, don't be like the prodigal son, just don't get lost. And that's all I knew when we thought about the lost coin and, and, and the lost sheep and the lost son, it was just don't get lost. But actually, Jesus is trying to offer a much, much more radical view, a view of God, not a view of us. Of course, it's partly the responsibility of the church at large, who over the ages maybe have found it easier to move people with fear rather than love, but it's love that really moves us. It's love that really transforms us. Here is a cheap way out. When we resonate with the heart of God for us, that's when things really happen. I'm quite often sort of coaching my children. It's a bit annoying for them, poor things, but I'm, you know, I wonder if this technique's going to work. <laughs> you know, but it, it's amazing, particularly with my youngest child, who has a will of his own, you know, that, that, that you know, you can't have an iPad. That, oh, whatever. So not interested in that. You know, trying to will him with, with kind of what you cannot have will not make him move. But give him a vision for something that he really wants and he'll move. You know, what, what we need to acknowledge is that actually God's not here with a big stick trying to push us forward. He's here with a big heart trying to call us out. I, I, I got into a lot of trouble a few years ago. I was teaching at New Wine and... Um, and uh, I think the, the purpose-driven life had, was the kind of book of popularity at the moment. And uh, my talk was, uh, there is no such thing as driven in the Bible, apart from when it applies to demons. Uh, it didn't go down well, particularly for the church that came up to me afterwards, who were called the purpose-driven church. Uh, <laughs> it was not a happy time for me. Um, you know, what, 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 I what I wanted to acknowledge was that the, the word driven in Scripture only applies to Jesus driving traders out of the temple courts or driving demons out of people who were demonized. The, the, the Bible is not rooted in the language of drive, it's, it's rooted in the language of call. Come unto me, all you who are burdened, all you heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Hear the voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord is calling to us, but he's not driving us. And, and in this passage, you know, we have exchanged call for drive we've thought oh you know oh you know it's a cautionary tale we've got to make sure that we don't fall foul of this either, either prodigal or the righteous son and we've got to make sure we don't get it wrong otherwise we're going to get in trouble with God no that's not what's happening here God is calling to us inviting us to participate with him how much drive is in your faith I do some executive coaching, some of you know. And, you know, leaders are always quite proud about, I'm a, I'm a driven leader. You know, that's the sort of statement that you want to put on your LinkedIn profile. I'm a really driven leader. I'm, we're watching The Apprentice at the moment. This guy quite likes that. You know, and it's quite interesting to hear that language used so often. I'm a really driven leader. As if that's a good thing. When actually maybe being a really considered leader would be better. What's driving you? Like, actually, is that helpful if someone else is driving you? Something else is driving you? Do you know where you're going? Do you know why you're going there? 
Because this language is the language of call, and it's not the call that you expected. In my experience, that there are three easy lies that people use to justify, if you like, their self-determination, their drive. And Jesus addresses them all in different ways within this passage. He kind of calls us out for those things which we let drive us. The first one is the idea that God is controlling and mean-spirited and wants you to live a bean-counting, adventure-free life. If we could just make God more hostile, it would justify and legitimize all of our rebellion. I remember, um, (laughs) I just want to see Christian bumper stickers, not so much these days, but back in the day before Twitter, that's what people did. Um, I just always remember one that said, it said, paras don't die, they regroup in hell. You know, and I just remember like kind of thinking about that for a quite a while as I do, sort of musing on it. I was thinking, oh my goodness, yeah, there's something so wrong about that. But if we could just really hate on God, that would sound more legitimate. Like it would be okay. There's people say, oh, well, God's so unjust, you know, I don't want to go to heaven anyway. I want to be with my mates in hell. You know, that kind of an idea. Like if I can make God really, really mean-spirited, really, really unpleasant, I can basically do what I like. You know, it's a great way of letting go of any sort of like moral or relational obligation to God if God is just bad. Secondarily, the idea is that God is indifferent to our suffering and cannot wait to say, I told you so. First is this idea that God is controlling me spiritually. I don't want anything to do with God. The second one is, oh, yeah, God is just indifferent to our suffering. I think a question that probably I get, maybe Tim gets, more than any other question, why does God, why does God allow suffering? Because if God allows suffering, I don't want anything to do with him. I'm like, wow, that's... That's a really interesting idea. You don't want anything to do with God if God allows suffering. But if God is intrinsically good, um, what are you saying? Like, what do you, you know, hospitals are pretty broken at the moment. My sister is a, is a and my brother-in-law both work in hospitals. They're always saying it's quite tough in the NHS at the moment. You know, things are difficult. Do you say, oh, things are difficult in the NHS at the moment. Hospitals are hard places to be. I don't think I'm going to go to hospital when I'm sick. Because I just fundamentally don't agree with them anymore because they aren't quite what I hoped they would be. You know, how's that work? What are, we, what are we thinking? We're throwing away the goodness of God because we just don't quite understand the frame of suffering. As you've seen, the father kills the fattened calf and restores the prodigal without mention of his mistakes. God isn't waiting there to say, I told you so. God's not standing by to go, here we go, here we go, crawling home. You know, I'm sure my dad, my dad's so kind, but you know, I remember like being a very wayward teenager and young adult, and he used to wait at, at the bus stop. I, I live in a really small town. It's in one of those books of bad towns in the UK. I think Luton or Milton Keynes always come top, but St. Neots is somewhere up there in the top 10. It's a small town on the A1 traveling north. No one ever gets off to actually see what St. Neots is like. And I've got to be honest with you, don't bother. Uh, and... Um, you know, he used to wait at the bus stop and I would go to Bedford with my mates and get the X5 bus, I still remember it, and then I'd, sort of, you know, I'd, I'd be toddling off the bus, seeing the car, seeing the old Volvo, trying to, you know, how am I going to get there, you know, without sort of looking like I might have had a few too many beers. In my head, I was kind of waiting for the moral chat. You know, my dad was just quite quiet. <laughs> Come take me home, put me to bed. That was that. In our heads, we got this idea that God is going to be there waiting, drumming his fingers on the steering wheel. Here he comes, the prodigal son. You know, oh, how am I going to like impress upon him about the prostitutes bit? 
Am I going to like let that sit for a few weeks and gradually bring it up? Or I'm going to like let him stew in his juices, be really nice. It's too nice. So he kind of, he knows that I'm upset, but I'm not going to let him in. Am I just going to do the silent treatment? When am I going to come out with, I told you so. Some of us are anticipating a God that's like that. Thirdly, that God is unjust and rewards the unrighteous, and this particularly relates to this final part of the passage. Have we seen, you know, all are unrighteous, but here, you know, you've got this older brother who's like, this just isn't fair. I don't like this God. My daughter and her friends quite often say to me, you know, so just let me work this out. You know, if you know about Jesus and you reject Jesus, how's that work out for you? What about if you don't know about Jesus? How's that work out for you? They're trying to work out, is God unjust? I'm saying, look, I don't know all the answers, kids, but I know that God is just and true. I can't tell you the answer. I don't know. Only God can judge. But I can tell you that he's justice and righteousness all in one. God is not controlling. God is not indifferent. And God is not unjust. But if we could say he was all of those three things, I think we can walk around and do pretty much whatever we like. It would be all right, because it would be like, hey, I'm justified to choose to live my life my way. It often feels like we'll say anything to undermine God's legitimacy in our lives. And even here in the church, you know, we can keep God at arm's length because to a degree at least we subscribe to one of those ideas. What does God need to do to tip the scales of your indifference towards him? Imagine if we really believed that God was good that God didn't take pleasure in our suffering, that God really was just, that God really was kind. You know, one of the most significant and yet overlooked passages in Scripture is Luke 15, 28. I'd love you to have a look at it just now. Just a single verse in Scripture, just hiding there. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Okay, you've got that bit. So this is the argument that God is unjust and rewards the unrighteous, which is the prodigal. But look, from the full stop, so his father went out and pleaded with him. The older brother refused to go in. But the father came out. The word there, esithen, is used multiple times in reference to entry into life or entry into the kingdom of God. The the, the brother refused to go in. The father came out. He, he, He wanted entry. He wanted to allow entry. He wanted to enable participation, to enable family. So the father came out to him. Now remember that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem at this point in his ministry. So this is close to the fulfillment of Jesus' ministry on the cross. In John 6, 38, it says, For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of those, the one who sent me. And it seems like Jesus is referencing his missional journey. The father came out to him. So Jesus came out from the father to make a way for us. But the final and most shocking part of this verse is, and pleaded with him. Just think about this for a minute. In your experience, when have you ever referenced God pleading for you? It, just think about any, any reference at all. Have you ever said in conversation, I know God pleads for me? God, not Jesus. Just, you know, just for a minute. God pleads for you as, as a child. It's pretty... 
phrase you've heard before in church? No. Because we all think that we're supposed to plead for God, for God to be interested in us, for God to care about us, for God to take an interest in what's going on in our lives. But here the father comes out of the house and pleads for the son who's turned his back on him and is walking away. Surely the most inverse assumption we make about God, that he might plead for us. When we envisage God in prayer, we, we, we're trying to please him. We, we, please forgive me, release me, heal me, provide for me. Plead, 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 God, 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 would you just take an interest? And here Jesus is claiming that God is pleading for us. The Greek here is even more strong. The word parakleto is often translated begged. God came out and begged the son, come back inside the house. I'm begging you, please, come in. Not only is this the God who runs towards us, he's the God who begs us to come home. Is that the God that you know? Certainly not the God that I grew up with. I had no imagining that God would be begging me to come into his house. In fact, my sense was that I probably shouldn't go into the house of God because I'm a bit of a mess. Actually, participation in the life of the family of the church was something that I should apologize for. I used to ask God if it was enough for me just to sit on the seat. That, is that okay? Paul references a group of people who, who kind of saved through the flames. And, I, and I'd always attach myself to that group of people. I'm one who sort of saved through the flames. Like, you snuck in through the smoke. Because of the smoke, no one can see you. So it's okay. You're like a seat warmer in the heavenly realms. That's all right. Don't, God won't see you because of the smoke. Now, some of us have got that idea in our minds. This morning, I, was, uh, I, I, spent, I always seem to make ridiculous um, illustrations. <laughs> you know, I spent the weekend making a massive kind of scale um, balance. You know, and I, I had some, I had some uh, skittles on one side. I had a cream egg. They were like going nuts for the cream egg. And, and that, the cream egg was on God's side of the scales. And I said, look, you know, we normally think like God is over there. And if we could just put enough good stuff on our side of the scale, then it would tip God's interest towards us. You know, the cream egg is coming our way. Just put good stuff in this side and the balance will gradually swing. Apart from the fact that actually the balance was never kind of balanced in the first place. Because what we really think is that balance is over there more. So the fulcrum is loaded against us. So God is even further on this side. So you've actually got to work doubly hard to get any kind of leverage. Because actually it's super hard to like make this tilt in your direction. God is far off. God is disinterested. And you've got to really work hard if you want to get an A grade in the kingdom of heaven. None of us have that for that. But then I described how actually the, the scales are not loaded against us. The scales are loaded towards us. That the way we've assumed God to act is not the way that God acts. Jesus' hearers thought that if they went to temple and made enough sacrifice, they could put their little skittles in the basket and tip the hand of God towards them. But no amount of sacrifice would change their experience. Because the reality is that God was going to bless them anyway. And this is the irony. You know that the older brother has developed an orphan spirit and misunderstands the nature of God. Because look what he says. If you just turn to the back of the, the bottom of the page there, after the older brother becomes angry, he says, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Does that sound like a kind of family setup you want to be part of? I've been 
That means I've been a slave to you, obeying your orders. Any parents in the house want to own up for that one? Social services are coming around to see you soon. He's, he's saying, I've been a slave obeying your orders. He's totally misunderstood what it means to be a son. And then he says, you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Gave me. Like, he assumes that, that this is payment for his service. Like, I need to be paid because I've been your slave obeying your orders, so now give me something. Like, not the best thing, just give me something to show that you appreciate me. There's so many of us live our lives like this in the kingdom. We're thinking, oh God, I've been a really good Christian this week. I've really prayed for people. You know, I've really sought your face. I've done my Bible study every day. Now, come on, just a small goat. Anything. <laughs> Anything. Just give me something. Anything to know that you're there and, you know, give me a blessing. Anything. I deserve it. God's saying, what, what are you doing? What, you've misunder, you've, you're living as an orphan when I've called you a son. The father says, everything I have is yours. Why have you been waiting? You could have had the fattened calf. You could have had anything. It's only here because you didn't notice that you could have had it. Otherwise, your younger brother would be eating the goat because you would have already eaten the fattened calf because it's yours. You can have it because actually all that I have belongs to you already. You know, I reckon we have far more orphans in the church than we have prodigals. Now, my experience of church leadership is that I'm trying to convince people to know that they can dine out with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and actually they're in the kingdom, yet they're still there going, all oh, these years I've really been slaving away, really, and you've given me nothing. I'm sure I've told you this story already, but just before I got married, um, Louis and I were in Oxford as students, and we, we, were, we were struggling. I was a trainee priest. Lou was a, a student, and uh, we were just about to get married, and um, I, I was the only one who had a mobile phone, and I was walking on the street uh, with Louis one day, and the phone went, and, um, and someone on the other end said, oh, is, is Lucinda there, please? And I was a bit like, this was before, you know, everyone had a mobile phone. So I was like, well, yeah, that's, yes, she is, but it's just kind of weird. What, why are you calling my phone? And, and, and this is the number we had for her. Anyway, I gave, it to, I gave the phone to Louie tentatively, and she started jumping up and down in the street, like, woohoo, like everything. And yeah, this is, woohoo, amazing. Something great has happened. So I was like standing there, as you do, like watching, like, what's going on? You know, who is this person? Who's called you? What's happened? And then she came off the phone. She said, We have won a honeymoon. And I was like, um, Okay. This is a timeshare, because I'd been scammed by a timeshare before. <laughs> so it's like, you know, everyone's done that, filled in the form, you know, you've got a free week at Butlins, and actually it's not really a free week. Uh, so I'm there going, no, 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 no. She says, it's in the Maldives. I was like, okay, this is clearly a scam. Like, who's going to buy this, right? Someone phones you up and says, you've just won a honeymoon of a lifetime to the Maldives. So I'm just there, like, complete disbelief this was ever going to happen. She says, no. Honestly, I entered a tie-break in Brides magazine, and I've actually won. Anyway, to cut a long story short, we actually had won the honeymoon of a lifetime to the Maldives, but the small print said that we had bed and breakfast only. So 
I phoned up the island. I'd never been to the Maldives, obviously, before. So I phoned up and I said, you know, are there any food stores on your island? I didn't even know what the Maldives even looked like. And um, the guy goes, uh, sir, we have five luxury restaurants. I said, you see, we've got no shops. And he said, oh, yes, yeah, so we have a luxury goods store. I was like, well, what can I buy there? He's like, well, handbags and, you know, knickknacks. <laughs> so I was like, so I can't buy any food there. He said, no, sir, you don't need to because we have five luxury restaurants. So I was, I was like, okay, and how much does it cost to eat in one of your five luxury restaurants? And he told me that, you know, dining basically began at $80, which was definitely out of our price range with students. So we were like, okay, it's okay. They, they threw in these two massages as well, so I tried to even trade the massages for free meals. And they said, we can't do that, sir. So, so what we did was we had two suitcases. Like, I realized you don't need to take anything to the Maldives, right? So we had one suitcase with swimming trunks and kind of clothes in, and another suitcase, we filled it with pot noodles <laughs> and neutral grain bars. And we thought we were so clever, and we literally, we went, I mean, it was like, it's called the Taj Exotica, it really was exotic. We turn up, and I'm feeling so smug, and we rolled into this unbelievable luxury resort, this island, and it was just, you know, it was just an island, it was a one island hotel thing. And, you know, I was like, wow, we have landed in paradise, but we could only have breakfast. So every morning... I went into the breakfast canteen, and I'm like, okay, here we go. And I literally, I was like, I was straight in continental breakfast, English breakfast, Japanese breakfast, Malay breakfast, German breakfast, uh, a lassi, which is some sort of Indian concoction, which is like about a million calories. And then I'm like stuffing croissants in my pockets. And I could see the waiters looking at me like, oh my goodness, I was really skinny then. They were like, wow, this guy's a whippet. What's he eat for dinner? Like, where does he put it all? Like, he must have the metabolism of a racehorse. And that was day one. Every day they started nudging each other. Here he comes. I think there was a sweepstake going on about like, what's he going to eat today? We didn't realize that like at lunchtime I was eating a neutral grain bar and at nighttime I was eating spicy chicken chow mein, pot noodle, on my stilted hut overlooking the Indian Ocean. And it was about $1,800 a night to stay in this resort. And so me and Lou, every night, with that little kettle you get in the hotel, we were eating our pot noodles. All week, we had a blast. Best breakfast I've ever had in my life. Pot noodles weren't quite so good, but, you know, we were saving money. And the last day, Lou said to me, you know, Will, you better go and check the bill, because that's what obviously grown-ups do. That. So I was like, oh, yes, yes, of course. Because we'd spent, you know, we bought a few drinks in the bars. Oh, no, it's going to cost a lot of money. I had to go to check the bill. And so I, I went to the concierge, and I said, I'd like to check the bill, please. And they, they, you know, they print out one of those letters. I said, like, why did you do that? They, pr they printed out a massive letter, put it in an envelope, and then slide it across the counter to you. So then immediately I started getting nervous, because I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, this is going to be really expensive. And then I open up this folio, and there's... There's one thing on it, water ski lessons, massive extravagance, right? So I did that. So I had to pay for that. But I, I said, where's the stuff we bought in the bar? Like the drinks and snacks? He said, oh, no, sir. You're full board. <laughs> he said, in fact, you're so all-inclusive, you can have whatever you like from any of our five luxury restaurants. <laughs> He's like... You, have you been to our specialist seafood restaurant where you can eat lobster thermidor and you can choose your own lobster and sharks swim underneath the restaurant and you can look at them while you dine? I said, is, is there any availability tonight? I know, sir. I'm sorry, it's fully booked, but I fly tomorrow. So, I'm sorry, sir. <laughs> uh, no, there isn't any availability. 
We spent the whole week eating pot noodles when we could have been dining in one of these five luxury restaurants. You know, and I thought, wow. I went back to Louie, who was still lying on a sun lounger, absolutely ashen face. She was like, how much was it? I was like, no, that's the problem. It was nothing. <laughs> you know, the reality of our lives as Christians is that we are living on bed and breakfast in the kingdom when we are actually full board. Now, we are eating pot noodles in our bedroom when we've been invited to dine with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, we, we, we've been just sitting by whilst, you know, the prodigals come in and dine on the fattened calves, and we've excluded ourselves, not even taking this small goat to celebrate with our friends. And God's called us to say, look, all that I have belongs to you. Come, dine with me, celebrate with me, come and join with me. I love you, I'm, I'm begging you, I'm pleading to you, come. The word begging, parakletos, made of two words. Para, which means close or besides, and call, kleo. This is God's close call. He's begging us. He's crying out to us. John 14, 16, Jesus tells the disciples, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, parakletos, the alongside presence. Jesus is just giving us a little clue. The Father is begging you, and actually the Holy Spirit is going to come and be an advocate, crying out to you, calling you, reminding you of my love. I want you to celebrate communion tonight with a different sort of attitude. Not crawling in, saying, oh, well, God, you know, if I take this, then maybe you'll like me. Maybe you'll listen to me. Maybe you'll welcome me. But taking it in the knowledge that all that the Father has belongs to you already. You're not called to live with an orphan spirit, you're called to live as sons of and daughters of the living God. The Holy Spirit is at work here tonight in you. Don't be dining on your own when you can be dining with the King. Let's all stand today with confidence that we might really join in that we might really belong, that we might really make a difference because he is really making a difference to us. Why don't we stand right now?